are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Happy to have you here. You're the first writer in the podcast. Oh, that's great. I'm very honored. Thank you for the invitation. No, my pleasure. You're a writer, but also you're a curator. You're also an artist and you are building a gallery, which is a hybrid. It's funded.art is both physical and digital. You have physical space where you are right now. That's the gallery itself. Yes, I'm at the gallery in Berlin. We're a gallery and an online platform, basically like everyone else, but we have two physical gallery spaces on Friedrichstraße in Berlin, one of the biggest shopping streets in, in Berlin. So a lot of people come by. Awesome. And at what time does it close? Because it's uh, 9 p.m. Is it usually open at this time? <laughs> no, usually <laughs> we close at six, but I always stay a bit longer. And if someone wants to come in late, Everyone knows Ryan from NFT Collective. Him and his girlfriend came by three weeks ago at 11.30 because they went to Friedrichstraße. And yes, if I'm still here, then I open the door and people okay. can see the exhibition. You also see it like an office space or purely, purely gallery? No, no. It's also, we're here and we opened on December 1st and I've been here like every day, Monday to Saturday since then because I'm also very interested Because as I've said, we're on one of the main shopping streets in Berlin. So a lot of people come in who don't know anything about the history of digital art, who don't know anything about NFTs except what they hear, they are dead. So I really want to know what people think about the exhibitions, how they respond to the work, if they prefer exhibitions with more screens or more physical work. So that's really important for me to get the feedback from people. And what's interesting to me is that artists would much rather just have one piece on a screen. But by now, I know that people are much more likely to spend a lot more time in an exhibition. If there's mm. more pieces on a screen and they know, then they walk forth and back and go just mm. spend more time in front of one screen. Yeah, that's a good trick. But it also makes sense with these dynamic pieces. They are changing. And with some pieces, they are infinite. They keep running and running and running. So that's a good thing for the gallery. I never thought about that. It keeps them there for a longer time. That's interesting. And I've been to a couple of, let's call them panels or conferences where you are usually there as a moderator and you're invited to many of these events to moderate conversations. So it's great to now have the chance to actually talk with you and you're kind of on the other side and learn a bit from your journey. Um, I'm always so... happy when I don't have to moderate and can just be in the audience. <laughs> now I even have to speak the whole time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Moderating isn't easy. You have to be prepared. You have to understand everything very well. It's different from this forum, which is an interview. But Annika, let's start from the beginning. Uh, how did you get involved in the art world? How did that happen? I studied art history and German literature at the university in Heidelberg. I guess a lot of people know the city because of its castle. So a lot of tourists come there, travel there. It's a small university city with a beautiful castle. So that was really nice studying there. And yeah, then looking back at it today, I would say we were young and naive. And we had founded back then as a group of students, a history about a magazine, about the history of art. And we thought it would be important that students get the chance to publish the pieces they write for the university. So yeah, then we first done a print magazine. Then a couple of years later, we turned it into a blog and I kept doing that in between. We were like 10 people. So we won 10 people. We won prizes. We worked with the biggest newspapers in Germany and so on mm. and so on. And I always wanted to be a writer. So I have let the, I was like the, the editor in chief and we had a CTO. So we were doing this. And to me, this sort of like feels like what I'm doing today with expanded.art, building something up with a group of people from the ground and yeah, trying to learn and understand how to run everything and how to work together in a team. Then what I've mm. been doing for a lot of years, working with artists. So yeah, that's how I got involved with also doing things online. Then we had to, because we wanted to interact with people, with readers, wanted to get the word out about the magazine. So I then joined Twitter. Later, I got active on Instagram and yeah, that's how I also got interested in digital art and right. at some point became a writer. 
Mm. Yeah, so you started in the traditional art world, that magazine, and what you were writing about early on was about not digital art. Am I right? Is that how you started? Or was it always digital computer art? No, that was in 2006. So back then there, okay. there wasn't Instagram came up in 2010, October. Mm -hmm. So no, it was basically really what you deal with in university. A lot of Renaissance art, contemporary art, all of these things, okay. what students write about in university. But the interesting part was that it was, yes, it has always been a print magazine from the beginning, but we had a website. Then it turned into an online magazine, a peer review magazine, and then into a blog. So it wasn't about digital art. That's basically what we had sort of taught ourselves, how to communicate, how to do everything online as a group of students. And yeah, people, I mean, we were the first ones to do this. So mm. that's also how I met a lot of people. Yeah, because we were like really serious about it. And people found that really interesting. I guess some thought we were crazy. We put a lot of energy into this and... No, we also hosted talks. Uh, we had invited art historians to come and give talks at universities. So we've done a lot of programming. And yeah, our institute was really happy about our activities. Yep. Okay. So, and people thought you were crazy because it was a digital magazine, because it was a website. That was the reason that they were, what are you doing? Or what was the reason? Yeah, first of all, students thinking that it's necessary to publish writing by students. Okay. Okay. <laughs> That's what we were publishing. I mean, yeah. but no, it, it were like really great texts, and some of the people we've published now write for the most important um, newspapers in Germany. So when you really want to, I don't know, become a writer and publish your work, where do you go to as a student? So we wanted yeah. to be the place where students could go to and get the first experience in publishing their work, and we helped them with that. We learned a lot through that. I learned a lot through that. Also, how to lead a team we were sometimes 10 to 15 people so yeah that was a lot of fun and then later we turned it into a blog and the funny thing was then i was in paris i had a fellowship there and you know then there was instagram and twitter and <laughs> people were always like oh she's tweeting again <laughs> so you were tweeting a lot so you were very active. No, I, they were just not on Twitter. They didn't do blogs. Mm -hmm. They were not on Twitter, not on Instagram. And people like the academics okay. are in America. It's a bit more popular, but try to find an art historian yeah. uh, on Twitter, even these days. Yeah. Like back in the days, it was like, oh, she's doing this thing. That Got was it. wild back then. Yeah. Yeah. Even now, it's not that common to have art historians art critic on Twitter openly, it's not very common. Like museums and institutions, writers, they have their own profiles, but conversations are not really happening, at least from what I've seen on Twitter or on Facebook. When it comes to traditional art, like the digital world, the digital block, blockchain art is different, but yeah, that's quite interesting, Anika. And what will you say your writing career, when you started to write, did that help you a lot? Do you think that was very helpful to kind of forge your path into what you're doing now, being connected to many people, network? Did the writing play a big part of that? Yeah, it was basically running the student magazine because we were really active. We were doing these contests. We collaborated with like Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. That's one of the two biggest uh, newspapers in Germany uh, for a contest. And the winner could do an internship at the culture department of the newspaper and she's now one of the freelance writers so we've done a lot of these things we've done interviews with art critics art historians so back then i met a lot of people and because i was actively seeking conversations on twitter already back then yeah because i always was interested in what's new yeah and i really try to see when you study you go to your university in my case heidelberg but how can you meet other people in other countries and other cities that's also what i like about the nft space we also met in paris you meet people on the internet you are interested yeah. in the same topics you can have conversations and then you meet them all over the world so that's great and that's what we've done starting in 2006 and then continued with the blog and then i started a project on instagram i hardly ever speak about it anymore <laughs> a very long time ago but it was titled this ain't our school and we were doing 
also a little contest assignment because back then Instagram wasn't really about photography and there were photographers on Instagram who were really interested and people who got into photography through Instagram. Mm-hmm. Because I've been on Instagram so early, there was a big community, same as in the NFT space. Now for me, this is like history repeating itself on another channel with the blockchain. And yeah, then we've just hosted like these monthly assignments. And in the end, we've worked with big museums, big institutions. We worked with some of the biggest photographers directly, Stephen Shaw, Joel Meyer Roberts, who is doing the excellent NFT project, releasing a work for, I think, the next 10 years with fellowship. Mm-hmm. Like with the daily auctions, this, yeah, Joel Meyer Roberts, Stephen Shaw, Martin Parr, with institutions like Fonas and Bayerle, we work with Wolfgang Tillmans and so on and so on. I don't know why I never mentioned it, but that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it was a big project. Sounds like very interesting people were involved. And Annika, when did you discover or how was that transition to, I guess, first computer art, art created with computer? And then blockchain art. So those two, um, how did that happen? When did you start to focus on computer art and then the blockchain? I was in Paris and I mean, yeah, when we've done the student magazine, sure, we also looked about digital art, computer art, then later post-internet art around 2000, when it is about 14, 15. So when you run a magazine or a blog, you always have to see what's uh, new, what people are discussing that your texts are not boring and that you actually deliver something people are interested in reading. So, yeah. And then the first, when was the exhibition? Simon Denny had curated a Chinkley Pavilion. I think that was in 2018. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The first in Berlin, the first uh, exhibition curated by Simon Denny about the blockchain. I went to see this. Then Jonas Lund had started doing the Jonas Lund token. That's also how I got my mm. first NFT. And that's also how I messed up my first wallet. Um, <sighs> because I, I, I bought something physical and then with it came the Jonas Lund token. And then he was like, yeah, you need to download this MetaMask thing. And I, and I was like, I called him. I was like, what is this? This is so annoying. Yeah. What do I need to do now? Why do I need to do this? I don't want any of this. And he was laughing. And I was like, okay, I do this. But I don't know. I guess he told, I'm pretty sure he told me about the whole seed phrase thing. But I was just like, whatever. He wants me to do and mm. I lost the seed phrase, but there were no punks or anything in there, so I'm totally fine. But yeah, that's how I got in touch with blockchain through artists, through being a writer. And then at some point NFTs came up and then when you're a writer and curator, that's I was super interested from the beginning. And because I wrote a column uh, for like I think six years for Germany's biggest art magazine, I always checked what's what's happening, what people might be interested. Then sure, when the hype started, I've written a bigger piece explaining NFTs. To me, that text felt so boring because I was just giving the basics. But I think that was my most read text. And it was one of their top 10 texts in the history of the media of the online magazine. That was really wild. It really went viral. Okay. Yep. In what year was this again? And 2018? 20, 2020. No, no. After the hype, 2021. That's when everyone wanted to know about NFTs and then because yeah. already a lot of people read the column. So then I explained NFTs and that text went through the roof because people were super excited to learn about NFTs. Yeah. When we look at your history, you have curated some amazing work from legends like uh, Herbert Frank, Lee Mulligan, Marina Abramovich. So from there, when you started to get into blockchain art, how did you build those connections? Is this people or states that you already met before blockchain art? You had those connections, you had to work with them, or is it something that you started to do after you got involved in blockchain art? So how did you got connected to such amazing legends and work collaborated with them? I guess when you're active on Twitter and when people know what you're doing, I mean, yeah, I've wrote the column for German this biggest art mm-hmm. magazine a lot of people had read this and people already knew me from the student magazine and the blog so and then i'm active on twitter and have a few followers on instagram people just see what i'm doing and what i'm interested in and then they just reach out the marina bramovich project i was part of working with her on her first nft project we had released it on tezos uh, last summer 
Mm-hmm. And yet yep. someone just reached out. Yeah, he had reached out a few months or end of 2021 about another project and that somehow didn't work out. And then he came back to me and was like, okay, this time it's Marina Bravovich. And I was like, okay, great. So let's do this. <laughs> and that's how it started. And then we ended up like a launch, sort of launching the project or speaking publicly about it at Art Basel last year. And Marina Bravovich couldn't mm-hmm. be there, but there was a conversation, a live conversation as part of the talk program, also organized by Tezos because the release was on the Tezos blockchain. And then Herbert V. Franke, I had met through a very good friend of mine, the museum director, Alfred Weidinger. He runs, mm-hmm. I guess, most people in the NFT space know the museum, the Francisco Carolino in Linz. It was the first museum doing an exhibition about the back then called the short history of NFTs, curated by Jesse Damiani. I helped in the background, mm-hmm. I helped with the catalog and so on and so on. But yeah. And he one day called me and was like, yeah, I've been to Herbert de Frank and you need to come and visit him yourself. Just join me when I go there the next time. And I was like, yeah, sure. Happy to come. And then he was called me one day and was like, yeah, I'm going whatever day that was to Munich again. Would you like to come? And I was like, sure. And I booked the train immediately. It was a super cold day. I was on a train like for a very long time. And mm-hmm. yeah, then I have met Fred and his wife, Susanne. And mm-hmm. the museum director went there with a curator of his solo show, Visionary, that was on view the museum in Linz last year, I think, starting in March. And a lot of people from the NFT space flew in. John Gerard was there because he lives in Vienna. Kevin Abosch came. Damiansky mm-hmm. flew in from New York. Martina Menegon was there. So we were like a small group of, I think, 20 people. Uba Morgen, the lettered icons were there. Office Impact, Nagel Draxler, like many people came. He was really happy. And that day I've been to Munich. I had tweeted and Instagrammed about me going there and I was really excited. And I was surprised about how many messages I have gotten, like direct messages and responses. Either people had known his work, like were really familiar with the work and were like, wow, you're going to meet him. And mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and others were like, wow, this is wild and started looking into what he had done. And when I met him, I said to him, well, do you know that you're really a legend for this generation of artists? And he was like, really? I was like, people were going, they were like, wow. And he wasn't aware. And when I went back home, I tweeted on Instagram again, and same reaction. And a few days later, I was on the phone with his wife, Susanna. And I told her, and I was like, hey, guys, you need to come on Twitter. You need to see that yourself. And she was like, no, we're so so busy with the museum show and it's already a lot. And Hamad was 95 back then. So that was Mm -hmm. already a lot of work for them. And I was like, come on, nothing's going to happen. Just set up the Twitter account and then you can just read and see what's happening and how excited people are. But then that went wrong and he had 10,000 followers after like 48 hours. And I was like, no, no, no. Because I had said to them, it's not going to be work. So mm-hmm. I was like, ah, I'm so sorry. I called them. I was like, I'm sorry. I mean, okay, I had pushed it a bit, right? I, I've messaged behind the scenes a few people. I was like, look, Herbert is on Twitter now. And they've wrote a beautiful first tweet because they were also like really excited about going mm-hmm. on Twitter and seeing all of this. And then I was like, okay, guys, I'm so, so sorry. I didn't expect this to happen because even after five days, he had 15,000 followers and a lot of people had reached out directly behind the scenes for interview requests. And so since then, we've been speaking every day, Susanna and myself, basically, every day on the phone discussing things. Herbert was part of um, the Tezos booth at Art Basel last year. Then he suddenly passed away uh, last July. And we now represent the estate exclusively because Susanna and I speak every day anyway. So that's beautiful what, that we now can continue working on this legacy together. There's going to be a lot of books coming out uh, over the next, I don't know, next year, mm-hmm. next month. We're working on a lot of things behind the scenes. Yeah, that's such an exciting story if you think about it. So for those listening, Annika, that maybe aren't that familiar with Herbert's work, he was a pioneer in computer art. And can you tell us a bit about, since you work with him and you have seen his history of works and also what his impressions of the space and how it evolved over time, 
how will you define or share what Herbert did and why he was so important for the computer art movement? I mean, the interesting thing is that he hadn't just been an artist. I would call him a universal genius. He was a writer, a curator. He yeah. is Germany's most famous science fiction writer. Yeah. From time to time, go back to his novels. So he wrote theoretical books and texts. Then he went into caves. That's how he started. He was a cave, what's the word, speciologist or something like that. And so, yeah, through going, through being underground and having to take photos in the dark, he got interested in working with technologies. And through that, he got interested in art and technology. And he wrote his first book, Art and Construction, in 1957. That was pretty early. And I've reread the book, I think, yeah, I've reread the book last year. And to me, what he wrote like 50 years ago, I, I read the book and I was like, wait, wait, is he writing about the year 2022? This sounds so familiar. And so far, the book has only been published in German. It's very small. I don't know, around 80 pages or so. They were translated last year. We're waiting for the museum and Linz to start printing it or to release it early next year. Kevin Abers is currently writing the introduction to the book. It's wild because like basically not much has changed when it comes to art and technology. So 50 years ago, he had already tried to prove that artists can create art using technology. And that was basically what his whole life was about. Whenever there was a new technology, work with the new technology, thinking about ways in which it's interesting and also bringing in math and his other interests. So he wanted to show that you can create beauty with math. Yeah, that's why he'd done the project Math Arts. Math. He worked on yeah. for 15 years. And then the funny thing was, I thought, because Susanna had always told me, well, Herbert worked on something until he thought he has solved the problem. And then he went on to the next project. And then I thought, okay, he had worked on Math Art for like 15 years. 15 years is a pretty long time. So yeah. after that, you can be like, okay, I've solved it. But no, that was actually not the case. And he went there... Because when he started, there weren't computers. So he didn't have a computer. So he needed to go to that institute. And he went there like every second Saturday. And sometimes his yeah. wife Susanna joined him. Imagine the devotion mm. for like 15 years. Yeah. Going somewhere like every Saturday and preparing formulas. You can then run on that computer and so on and right. so on. But no, in that institute, they just were okay, we don't need this machine anymore. Do you want to have it? And it was big. It was really big. So they were like, yeah. Herbert wanted to take it, but they couldn't. So that was basically the end of the math art project. Otherwise, okay. he would have continued working on it. So yeah. And then as a science fiction writer, he was interested in the metaverse, in AI. Um, then he was very early uh, in the metaverse. He had a digital art gallery sort of in the metaverse. Uh, early 2000s yeah he was like early with everything i think he was just early with everything 10 20 30 40 years and also reading his novels were going to publish susanna the foundation Herbert de franke which they had set up together and what the money went to they made with the math art drop was a quantum release i had worked with them on that so yeah, they set up the foundation Herbert de franke and susanna is the managing director and so yeah whenever we sell something with the gallery or we do an exhibition or now we have an NFT drop upcoming. We always know what this money will be used for, either a publication or like in this case with the upcoming drop, the foundation with our help is going to set up an NFT conference in Berlin next year on okay. the history of generative art. So it's not okay. His work gets sold and then this money goes just somewhere. No, mm -hmm. Susanna and I discuss every time uh, when we do something together, okay, what are the next projects she would like to realize? What are the things Herbert said, please do this? And what they had discussed. People in the NFT space call this roadmap, by the way. We don't <laughs> roadmap, call it roadmap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, yeah. we don't call it roadmap. But no, so that's very important for us. We always discuss this. What have his dreams been? What can we realize? What would be at a certain moment in time important to speak about next? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that's a, an amazing story. I was reading about Herbert. I wrote a couple of articles. I think when you made, you organized a tribute with many amazing artists, they all created either a piece or a collection and it was 
to commemorate his life, basically, and what he meant to the computer <laughs> art movement. And yeah, I was very impressed that he was actually, as you said, the best-selling German science fiction writer. That's quite a feat when you think about it. So he was basically... Not best-selling, <laughs> was Germany's most well-known um, science well fiction writer. Okay. Mm. And what what were his thoughts on NFTs, Annika, on the blockchain and all these things? He was such a bright person, he must have understood it. But the fact that all these realizations about the metaverse came to a reality or it's in that direction, what were his thoughts? What was he thinking about, like all these art selling online through objects, digital objects, and a lot of these artists and collectors collecting it worldwide? What's he sharing about that? The interesting part was the art market was something that he was totally not interested in. Mm. I had met him last year, early spring. I was like, what is your wish? What could I help you with? What would make you happy? And then he was looking at me, just smiling. And I was like, yeah, is there something that's an unrealized project? Anything? Would you like to work with an auction house? Would you like to be represented by a gallery? Could it be Sotheby's, Christie's? Pace Gallery, you know, I've just mentioned names, whatever. And he was looking at me and was like, what? And he had never heard of Sotheby's and Christie's. He didn't know what I was speaking about. He was like, no, the art market, that's for other people. I'm not interested in that. But he was interested in always in new technologies. Like I said, they were early in the metaverse. Yeah, they had this gallery in the metaverse and he had curated exhibitions in there. Him and his wife, they owned land. Mm. And so, yeah, that, of course, was super interesting for them. And they started looking into it in 2021 okay. and started thinking about projects. And some have been in, in conversation. And then we somehow met. But there was this solo show yeah. that yeah. was upcoming in the museum. So on this was the focus. And at the same time, his 95th birthday was upcoming. And his wish was to publish his digital work. Mm-hmm. It was math art because all of us together thought this is the one project that sums up what yeah. he was interested in and what also felt right. relatable for people in the NFT space, we thought. But no, he, he's always been interested in new technologies and, and I really hope we will be able to publish his novel soon because then it's wild. He wrote a book in 1972 and there's cyborgs in there and people sort of, yeah, it's crazy. It's like, he just, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and I always thought like, even now this would be sort of visionary what he mm -hmm. had in mind. So yeah, yeah. He, he was early with basically everything he had done. Yeah. I, I have to read that book and I wonder, is it going to be published, I guess, physically? But do you see also the potential for it to be published online, like digitally, not in the NFT form, in the blockchain form? Have you discussed about that? Do you think that might be possible or just like normal, traditional publishing, maybe Kindle and physical books? Yeah, Art, Art and Construction will be published as a physical book by the museum. Instead of a catalog, it will be this important book from him and so yeah these things are up to the museum but there's going to be and you've just mentioned the tribute this is when his wife and myself have curated together the money that had been raised through the tribute through donations from artists had been used because his archive is at zkm people in the nft space know the institution they've also been early in, in everything around blockchain, they have one of the best museum collections and so on and so on. So, but they didn't have the funds to digitize his archive. And mm -hmm. he was really disappointed about that mm -hmm. because they have all his writings on paper and mm -hmm. so on and so on, but no one had access to it. Someone who went to ZKM, but who does that? Yeah. It's in the South of Germany, it costs money and so on and so on. That was really important for him that his writing gets digitized and made accessible online. So money from the tribute went to ZKM and then Suzanne and I didn't know what to expect. We thought about, okay, Herbert could what he had done because he knew people who gave him access to technology. And then we thought most people have a smartphone, have a laptop, so we all have access. 
in most cases. And then we thought, okay, let's try to help in South Africa to give kids a chance to start working with technologies. So mm -hmm. the money got donated to schools in Namibia. The pilot project is running or has been running. And now more and more schools get involved. We're going to release a full update um, about what's happening and what could have been achieved. And there's many more things going to happen. So I think amazing. that was the most beautiful thing that we could all together, the 80 artists that were part of the tribute, could help mm -hmm. fulfill his wish, but then also continue doing what helped him give other people access to technology. Yeah, that sounds perfect because he did what he did because he loved technology and art was a way to explore it. But he, as you said, was not really interested in the market, in the art market. He was a professor, he was a writer. I think from what I read, he never lived from his art, at least in his early life. So it makes sense to kind of apply these funds into ways that uh, help people to get into technology, get into the things that he was interested in. So that's amazing, uh, Annika, what you are doing with Susan and all the things that you're mentioning, it's really exciting. And we talked about a bit about your gallery, expanded.art. We already talked about how you got into the space, the art space, how you made the transition to the digital art space and, and all the projects, some of the most important projects you have curated. I think it's important and other, let's call them junk, junk curators, many people that are, have that idea of curating shows, curating or working with artists, working with different institutions. I was wondering what will be your advice, both fields, the traditional art world, the digital art space, you have worked with many, um, we can call them companies, institutions, artists. So for a junk curator, somebody that wants to start, um, what would be your advice? How can they do that today? I never wanted to be a curator. <laughs> I got into curating by accident. I always wanted to be a writer. And I'm writer. very grateful that this happened and I enjoy it. I think that basically counts for everyone. Whatever you want to do and believe in, just do it mm -hmm. and keep doing it. I think it's important to take care that one can sustain themselves. So that's always important. But then we've run the student magazine and then Instagram came up and I was just super fascinated by it. When I first opened Instagram, I thought like, wow, this is going to be the future of communicating mm -hmm. online also of creating and sharing art. So I was super interested from the beginning and I think that's important. And then when you just keep going and keep doing things, then just stuff comes to you. People come to you, they reach out to you, you're in conversation with people. That's also, I now teach thanks to Übermorgen at the Angewandt in Vienna, a class of students who study digital art. And I didn't know whether they were interested mm -hmm. in NFTs or not. So I just went there. This is a democratic class. We now discuss what you would like to learn in this class about NFTs. Mm -hmm. And I feared they might hate it, but they didn't. <laughs> they were like super excited. Okay. We want to know what we can do as artists with NFTs. And I was like, great. Then we just going to release NFTs together at the end of this mm -hmm. semester. And they were like super happy about it. And immediately in that class, we started working on the NFT drop. And I also said to them, just do what you believe in and keep informing yourself. So I think also for everyone who would like to become a curator and just go out there. I was always interested in learning about new things and being online and speaking with other people and learning more. That's I think why I also got interested in the NFT space. It gets never boring. It never gets boring. You can learn something mm -hmm. new every day and that's what I enjoy. But I think if you have to force yourself going out there, being online, I guess then it might be really difficult to become a curator or maybe even a writer because you just have to be out there and, and have to inform yourself and you have to spend a lot of time online. But yes, I would just say, just go out there, go to galleries, go to museums, meet people. You meet people online. Yeah. You start conversations yeah. and then also just do things. That's also always what I say to students, just start doing your own things. Like we've done, no one at the university told us now you guys do an online magazine. Now you guys do a blog. Now you do this. Now you do that. Now you do this composite uh, competition. We were just like, we wanted to do it. 
because we were curious and wanted to change things and yeah, just do that and start curating online exhibitions, for example, or start curating mm -hmm. exhibitions in your neighborhood. I don't know if the media artist Aram Bartol, and I forgot when that was, I think early 2010, he started setting up exhibitions in internet cafes all over the world. And then other people oh. as well started curating because in internet cafes, there's computers and you can just yeah. go in there and rent the computers and they were called speed shows. So we've done that in Berlin together. Aram and I had curated a speed show together. Ah, when was that? Maybe 2019. Yeah, I think 2019. That's also when I met Thomas Webb, who is now the CEO of Web.game. So mm -hmm. yeah, just do things and then other people come and you right. meet them. Yeah, just, just start yeah, curating wherever, yeah. internet cafe. It was really funny <laughs> because it, it was wild. It took us so long to actually find an internet cafe. And I think it was really 2019 because there's hardly any internet cafes left. And at least not in Berlin. So yeah. Adam had to like really yeah. drive around in Berlin to find an internet cafe. And I think we found one with like 10 computers. Wow, but yeah. is that like... People use it? Is it like operational or is it more like a, yeah. a museum or some sort? Oh, so no. people use it. Okay. Yeah. And when we were there was actually someone wanting to use one of the computers, but <laughs> <laughs> they were taken by us. Um, yeah, it's a show. Just be creative, do things, start curating, and then things very likely come your way. Mm. And Annika, when you curate and you're also part of boards of curatorial boards, when you curate with a group, so it's a group that curates something. What are you usually looking for? There are many these days digital applications, open calls or artists that have to submit their works to different, could be marketplaces, to galleries. So when you are involved in those kind of projects, what are you usually looking for? Yeah. What can artists learn? What are curators looking for? Or you think there is no answer for that? I'm on the advisory board, for example, for House of Electronic Arts in Basel, but then there's an advisory board meeting, I think twice a year. So we come together, the institutions present what they are working on, and then they ask the advisory board for advice. That's mm -hmm. actually like really what it means being on the advisory board, or we all of us say, if you need something, just come and ask and House of Electronic Arts has started releasing NFT projects on FX Hash. And the first drop was Leander Herzog, for example, which was a beautiful project. So these, or then there's the Artblocks Curation Board, for example. And that's a democratic process, basically, because artists either get invited or get some other way in touch with the Artblocks team. And then the Artblocks team works with the artists on their projects. And then once a week, they are sent to the curation board. Then everyone on the board, if they have time, look at the projects that were submitted this week. And um, then there's feedback. And then basically, depending on the feedback, the project is either curated or presents. But it's not that people come together and discuss projects in this way. But otherwise, open calls. Yeah, I mean, I've worked with Nicole from Vertical Crypto Art last year. And yes, we've done an open call for an exhibition we've done together in Berlin. And yes, and we mm -hmm. really went through all the applications. But then when, for example, curating a group show, it's not so much selecting single artists or thinking this is a brilliant project. Then it's more like, okay, what's the topic of the exhibition? And then you really try to think what works, what's the storyline, what's the topic, do we want people to learn something, and so on and so on. And then you just also see what works well together. You have a space, you have the topic of context, you have the topic of storyline. There's a lot of things that need to be taken into consideration. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess if someone applies for something, it's always important to check yeah, what the topic is, and then just write a good text and then submit the great piece. <laughs> yeah, it, it in the end, you're going to be part of. A... I think that's it, a it pretty comes... important part. I mean, I guess most <laughs> artists wouldn't agree, but mm -hmm. when 
That's also how I got into curating. A museum director, Alfred Weidinger, who now runs the museum in Linz, had invited me to curate an exhibition. And I thought, okay, I never wanted to be a curator, but I've written in my column about this topic, which was, to me, back then, and internationally highly relevant because young artists like Avida Biström, Petra Collins, Molly Soda, who's also a Nicole Rogero, some of the artists that are now also known in the NFT space were active on social media, Leah Schrager, and they actually had shown themselves in a way. They wanted to see themselves and they shared their work. And there was a lot mm -hmm. of criticism around it. This is not feminism. This is not this. This is not that. They shouldn't do this. They should do that. It was like horrible. Mm. It was really horrible. And I kept writing about it. And then when the museum director approached me, I was like, yeah, would you like to do a show? And I was like, yeah. I have this topic is important. I would like to present this in a museum show. And I didn't have much time, so I invited someone to curate it with me. And yeah, I reached out to all the artists I had prayer written about. And and because I didn't want to be a curator, I was like, okay, I come from text. I have this whole storyline and narrative in mind. These are the artworks. I know how to put them into a space because that's also what I learned when I studied art history. But I really came from the text. And that's yeah. what I do with every project I work on. I always come from the text. Everything, every single exhibition I work on, that's my approach. Yeah, and so far it worked because, yes, people look at art, but then they also start reading. And I think that just has to be a storyline. Also, when I'm here at the gallery at expanded.art, then people come in and then you have to start speaking with them about the exhibition. And right now we're showing Lee Mulliken and you see some of mm -hmm. his artworks behind me yeah. and we're showing the prints, his lithographs, because people ask when MoMA. These are editions from the 1960s, 1970s. They're all mm -hmm. in the collection of MoMA. And then we're showing his digital work he had started working on in the 80s. Because then you can tell people where he comes from, that he comes from a very traditional medium, and that then in the 80s he was invited to start working with computers at UCLA. And he was the only one who was interested in doing that. And it's interesting when people come in and then they ask, from when is that? And then I'm like, yeah, that's from the 1980s, that's from the 1960s. And they're like, wait, what? So they look yeah, at it that's... and they, they would... They would have never thought it's something like right. this had been done in the 90s. But it's always important. And then his son, Malekin, came here and was showing a painting, physical painting that was influenced by his early computer art right next in dialogue with his digital work. And he said he was so happy to finally see this next to each other. Because you can really see how these things influenced each other and then you can I can also show it to people. They're like, oh yeah, I see it. So mm -hmm. I think that's just important thinking about how to speak about an exhibition, what you would like people to understand. But then also as an artist, when thinking about a career, I think, or an exhibition, basically about everything, I think it's also very helpful yeah. if you don't no, think I... just in project, 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 I'm invited to this, this, no, connect the dots. Mm -hmm. I guess that's really important. Like that's also what Herbert de Franca has done, for example. Yeah. What are you interested in? What would you like to find out? What could be the logical next step? Mm. What helps people understand what you're interested in? What sets you apart from other people? Because doing pretty pictures, and I don't in no way mean it in any negative way, a lot of people can do, right? But what is that you the are message. an artist are interested yeah. in what would you like to contribute to the history of digital art maybe even to the history of art what is your contribution what are you interested in no one else might be interested in and yeah. then just continue following that track right right yeah it's like building your artist vision and i think it's a what you what you mentioned that you start from the writing and it's the best way possible to put some context into what's happening. And I think that's important. Um, and for artists as well, I think it's a good way, a good approach could be to explain their art in a better way. Some say they want their art to be self-explanatory. That's also a valid point, but I guess as a curator, it's really important to 
contextualize what is happening, what's the story behind it, the history. So yeah, that's very interesting. I think many young curators will appreciate your advice there, Anika. How is your approach on the expanded.art, which by the way, congrats. I think you have in a short amount of time, it has grown a lot. You have published some amazing projects. The platform, I think it was with Valerie from Tesos, we were chatting about the shopping cart that you have. So it's a very intuitive way to buy art, which has kind of a flow that people are used to in real life, like when you buy on Amazon. So you get an email confirmation, which is not really common on the NFT world, but it's great for people that are new to the space. It's more user-friendly. So congrats on expanded.art. And can you tell us a bit about the vision? Because it's a very particular, it's, there is a clear focus on what you're doing there. Can you tell us a bit about that? What's your vision? What kind of art you want to showcase? We expanded that art present yesterday's pioneers and today's avant-garde. So this basically really is what it says. So we really like work with pioneers like Herbert B. Franke, Lee Mulliken, Hans Dehlinger, <clears throat> Heinrich Heidersberger, like with a lot of the people who have been doing art since decades. And then I always look out for young talents, such as Margaret Murphy. I met her, that was during the pandemic, at her university because I was invited to give a talk about online exhibition like via Zoom at her university in, in Hartford. And we just stayed in touch. And at some point I saw her on Twitter and getting interested in uh, NFTs. And then she got interested in AI. So yeah. Also, being an artist maybe is not just about making art, but about being persistent, showing that you really bring a passion and that nothing can stop you. And that's what we see with Lee Malik and his son was here and he was his dad was constantly drawing. What you see behind me said he mm -hmm. was drawing in many cases in front of the TV. So yeah, so that's what is important for Expanded.art to present yesterday's pioneers and today's avant-garde, we have two physical gallery locations in Berlin. We do, and it's really funny. <laughs> so we do one, or by now, because we have two galleries, two exhibitions per month, one per space, and then shorter sort of like presentations, maybe in the showroom on the occasion of drops. And yeah, so for the NFT space and exhibition, <laughs> for three months no three weeks like even for the artists they're like after a week they're like wait what my mm -hmm. exhibition is still on yeah we have discussed your exhibition is on for three weeks oh yeah mm -hmm. right it's just been a week so they're <laughs> not used to in the NFT space most things are like one night a weekend three days if it's six yeah. days it's already long mm -hmm. but we reach a lot of people in the traditional art world they're like you're doing a lot and I was like oh <laughs> I have the feeling that for the NFT space, we're sort of like really slow and not doing a lot because it's like three weeks and not like one week, one week, one week, one week. Yeah. So yeah, because they do exhibitions for like six weeks. That's also very important, like the physical presence, mm -hmm. because I think it's really important that people who might not know about the history of digital art and NFTs don't think, well, that's just JPEGs you can put on screens. Yeah. No, the history of digital right. art started in the 50s when uh, artists such yeah. as Herbert B. Franco and others started using technology to mm -hmm. create art. And I think it's really important that the mission present yesterday's well, pioneers and, and today's avant-garde. Yeah, that's amazing. And what's the percentage, the ratio of people that visit your gallery that aren't familiar with the digital, let's say the blockchain space and NFT and the ratio that are, is it like half and half or do you get much more traffic from people that are that understand the NFT space? What, what's the ratio like? Uh, people in the NFT space quickly learn about expanded.art. So whenever someone is in town, they come by. So, and that's also why I'm here every day. So if you're in town, just come by. If there's not just right now Art Basel or NFT Art Zurich or any other big NFT event, I'm at the gallery like 100% for sure. If I'm not here, I'm like close and my team will call me. When someone comes and I'm here, so please, when you're here, say who you are if you would like to meet me. And I'm in most cases five minutes away if I'm not at the gallery. So, yeah. And because we're on one of the main shopping streets in Berlin, a lot of people come by and people who just stumble in, they think NFTs are dead. Mm. 
they yeah. might have heard about NFTs and then they're like, oh, wait, but I thought that's a hype. Or wait, what are NFTs? And so, for example, we've done an exhibition with Hans Stelinger. He also one day just stood in front of me and knew his name and he came by with his daughter and they are wonderful and lovely people. Someone like him, all of these pioneers, they just kept going. Mm-hmm. And now he's super interested in everything blockchain and he was has just been on holidays and I know he'd been working on his first, first NFT release. So yeah, so when we had shown his plotter drawings, I made sure we're not showing a plotter because I didn't want people to know from the outside when they walk by, this has been done with technology. For mm-hmm. people who didn't know anything about plotter drawings, they just came in and a lot of people came in. It was summer, we had the door open. It looked very minimalist. It was very beautiful. Hans and his daughter were here every day. And one day Hans stood in front of me just smiling and said, I didn't know so many people would be interested in plotter drawings one day. And I was like, no, they're not interested in plotter (laughs) drawings. They're interested in art. So they came in, they saw art, and then they were like, well, how did either they started speaking with him if he was here? How did you do it? Or how was this made? And then we started speaking about plotter drawings. And most people didn't know about plotters or code as a medium and all of these things. If you ask me about people who just walk by, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of knowledge, but in general, a lot of people from the NFT space can come by. Christiana Paul curated the Whitney Museum. She came by when we had the exhibition, The Thinking Machine on view, when we presented 40 pioneers, also someone like Annalisa Cordero. And we're very grateful that Laurent Dom has collected an iconic piece from Annalisa Cordero. So Christiana Paul was here, and Jordan Cantor from Artblocks was here. Casey Rias had visited us a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. So basically everyone who's in Berlin just comes by. So I can't really give a ratio that also depends on who's in town. It's also important for me to learn because then people come in and they're interested. They see about it, they hear about it, and then they're like, okay, great. How can I learn more? Where can I mm-hmm. inform myself? And mm-hmm. then I figured, okay, wait. The answer basically is you have to go on Twitter, subscribe to our newsletter <laughs> right. or online magazine. If you really want to dive deep and start collecting and so on and so on, really inform yourself. Yeah. I was like, the only way is Twitter. And that's also how I had the idea yeah. to do the Voices of Web3 project. I invited artists, curators, collectors to give a statement of like less than one minute about the year. 2023 in Web3 because I wanted to have a place on our platform because we also have an online magazine doing a lot of interviews with artists we work with because I wanted to have a place I can send them to. I think right now there's 25 people on it. The McCoys are upcoming with their voice jam next week. Spalter's on there, Susanne Pecher, but Franco's wife and a lot more people. And then I can just say, and Sasha Styles, Anna Maria Caballero, for example, Christian Buck, really a lot of people. And I made sure it's a very diverse group of people. So, and now I can send them, well, you can go to our website. You just go to the section Voices of Web3 and mm-hmm. um, start reading. You learn about some of the important artists, basically thought leaders in digital art and culture. And that's the starting point. And then from there, they have a few people they can start with. And then they can read interviews on our magazine and then just continue from there. Because also these artists in the interviews mention a lot of other projects, artists they're inspired by, galleries they work with, shows that's just like a very good source for people to get mm. started. Yeah, that's that makes sense. It's a way to learn from the people actually doing something and not from some sort of platform or something else. So yeah, and you're right. The best way is to go on Twitter and follow specific accounts that are sharing what's happening. That's where and we I are always, at this moment. I always also send them to right click safe to outland. I tell them if you want to read and learn more, there's two fantastic online magazines, right click safe mm-hmm. outland. Then I always send them to feral file. Uh, and I tell them if you want to see great digital art exhibitions online, visit feral file. And you've just mentioned that we sort of have a cart and that this is not common. A, that has to do with regulations in Germany. We can't just do connect wallets. That would be totally impossible. So mm. we have to know where people are based for tax reasons. So anyone being mm. angry, I'm very sorry. We would be in serious trouble, really serious trouble if we wouldn't do this. So yeah, but then it's also people can pay with credit card. 
And the most important part is, and I'm very grateful that one can now pay, actually since a longer time, pay with credit card on object and on FX hash. It's so much easier for people who don't have a wallet to actually start collecting. And mm -hmm. when they start collecting on expanded.art, they don't even need a wallet. They can claim their NFT to their dashboard and then it's sitting there and wherever they're ready to get a wallet, they can transfer it to the wallet. Mm -hmm. Because when I mentioned that people are always like when they're at the gallery, okay, this is a digital artwork and how do I collect it? And then I'm like, yeah, you yeah. know, NFTs mm. and you need a wallet. And then they're nearly running out of the gallery. If they hear wallet crypto and they're like, don't worry, you don't need a wallet. You can pay with credit card. And the most important part for me was finding out that actually people in the NFT space also really prefer to pay with credit card. Oh, really? Like so the even, people in the, yeah. even people in if, the space, they prefer to pay with card, with credit card. If you give mm -hmm. them the choice, yes. Even the biggest collectors. If okay. you give them that's, the choice, yes. That's good to know. That's good to know. But yeah, I agree. Also, I see in part with my newsletter, premium subscribers, they are all like 85, 90% pay with card. And sometimes I have the option to pay with crypto. And it's been like for two years that they, most of them prefer to pay with card. And I think it's also a way to organize better for taxes and different reasons. It's especially in what we call NFT art. It makes probably more sense. Organizing expenses in crypto with crypto wallets is, is very complicated as well. So yeah, but that's good to know, Anika. And, you know, we have been talking for over an hour. It's been very exciting. I wanted to touch briefly on a topic that you are very active and know a lot about, which is recently I wrote an article about the effect of the identity or if an artist uses a full name or a short name. And what was interesting to me while doing that research is that in generative art, if you look at the top selling artists, 85% are male and 15% are female, at least from their names. That's what we can see. And I was wondering, you have been around for a while in the art world, in the digital art space. Why is there such a big gap? Is it because there are more male artists or is it because mm -hmm. there is some sort of problem where male are getting more exposure and are selling more because i think you have thought about these what are your thoughts there anika i mean that's a tricky question and yeah thank you for all the work you do it's great i love to read everything from you put out there because it's always interesting and always well researched so yeah and then what you've just mentioned you've published a longer thread and it was so interesting what you find out found out but then you looked at is someone going with their real name or is being called Snowfro or something. Hmm. And female and non-binary artists, what they've seen first was, no, this is not the question here. The topic is the gender. Hmm. And I guess a few people had said, well, the real topic is the topic of gender and the gap here. I don't know where that comes from. When it comes to generative art, I think it's maybe very easy. Boys play with video games and they start through that somehow coding also many of the artists I've worked with over the past years, they always, yeah, I was playing, playing computer games and through that I've started coding or I've wanted to, I don't know, just build a like Manuel, an artist Manuel Rosner, who, who's a pioneer in building virtual worlds, for example, and also mm -hmm. virtual exhibition spaces from computer games, he straight went there. So I think that just also comes from video games. But I guess that will change very likely over the next few years. More and more young women learn coding. Yeah, I really hope that's the case. But yeah, yeah, other than that, that's why Operator and I have done the project Unsigned, which happened because there had been an article published in The Guardian. And it basically said, if a male artist signs an artwork, the price go up. If a female artist signs an artwork, the price goes down. All of these artworks by Lee Mulligan, by the way, are signed. Isn't a guarantee for a very high price. And then Operator and I, we've been to a dinner hosted by Tezos, organized by Ryan from NFT Collective. And there was a print by Quibibi. And there were people like Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon, Diane Drew Bay, a lot more people. 
from the Berlin community. There was a sprint from Quibibi and they wanted everyone to sign it and then auction it off. And I said to operator, well, we shouldn't sign it because then the price goes down, right? That what the study had just found out. I was like, no, no, I was just making a joke. But I was like, no, we can't (laughs) sign this. All the female and (laughs) non-binary artists in the room, if we sign this, the price will go down. It was just a stupid joke. And then we looked at at each other and were like, wait, maybe we should try to do something about it, right? And bring attention to this topic because it was in The Guardian and it had made a bit the rounds in the NFT space, but not that much. I've seen it also when collectors speak about the grails, right? Yeah. In most cases, it's 10 male artists. In yeah. most cases, it's really like the gold standard art blogs. And then it's always same 10 male artists, the same projects. I don't know why that is, but we thought we need to bring attention to this topic. And then I guess people at the dinner party thought we were crazy because we started working on this project immediately. And when we left the restaurant, Deja called the lawyer, uh, operator's lawyer, and we're like, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to release 100 signatures on the blockchain. Is there anything we need to keep in mind? And it was one at night and we wanted to release the project the next day because we already had started promoting it. Yeah, we were wow. just sitting there planning the whole drop that evening and we started tweeting. We had planned the first tweet. We needed a title. We needed the first line about the whole thing. Then friends saw it and were like on Twitter because people see it immediately. And they were like, what are you working on? And we're like, we can't say it. But would you like to give us a blurb? That's what usually is on the back of a book. And then people just started sending us things. Like Kevin Abosh said, I'm flabbergasted. And yeah, we just got like, all these comments we could tweet and people were excited and they didn't really know what was coming. Like no one knew what was coming. I think they heard a bit what we we're working on, but yeah, everyone was just excited. And then not even 24 hours later, we had launched the first four signatures. And then over three months, we had invited 100 female and non-binary artists to contribute to the project. Mm-hmm. And no, we didn't get rich with the project. That's funny enough what the critique was. Everyone can see online how much money Operator and I got. I think each artist got 90% of the sales of their mm-hmm. NFT. We sold for 200 tests, 90%, and then 10% went to Operator and myself. And I think I got either 2 or 4%. I can't even remember. One, like 800. I didn't even make 800 tests with the project. Mm-hmm. So we just did it because it was important. And that's also what I can say to every curator. Yes, curation has to be paid. It really has to if you work for other projects. If you work for other people, if you get invited to do something, make sure you get paid like 100%. If you don't get paid, don't do it. You're going to make things worse because I can do it. I now always speak up. If something is not paid, please pay. It's not just support Mm -hmm. the artist. It's really wonderful. And I'm grateful because it was also hard for me as a curator. And I mean, curators don't get paid. Well, don't worry at all. It's like, wow. It's not something people can really live from. But for me, it was also tough seeing digital artists struggling. So for me, it's wonderful to see that artists can really live from the art they create. That's the best thing that could happen. It really is. But there's more people in this space. There's writers, there's curators, there's people working on these projects. Just everyone needs to be paid. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's an amazing first project. That's a great initiative. And what you said that there are more people working on projects and I like the way of distributing how the technology does it with the smart contracts and now more platforms are incorporating curators fee and these sort of ideas. I think that's great for the space and I hope we see more of that. But Anika, it's been, as I said, over an hour. I just have one final question, which I ask all the guests and it's who are three rising artists for Veronica Mayer, three artists that you are really excited about in the digital art space. It's a tough question. Have you, give, <laughs> have you given me this question in advance? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. That's a very tough one. Three, it has to be emerging, right? Or can it be like some pioneer people might not be familiar with? Yeah, it could be, it's very open, to be honest. It's three artists that inspire you, that you want to mention, that people should look at, that if they don't know them, that you think their art is interesting, 
It's very flexible, to be honest. Mm, yeah, I've already mentioned Margaret Murphy, but I would really like to mention Margaret Murphy. Yeah, she's an emerging artist. She comes from photography. She is one of the, I've just mentioned, net feminists, this group of female artists. Releasing work on Instagram, she was part of that group. And that's not what Maya Mann now is doing. She's also a great artist, but super well-known in the NFT space. Yes, Margaret is also widely known in the NFT space, but I think it's important for me to mention to really keep an eye on her. And second, I think Heinrich Heidersberger is a pioneer. A lot of people might not be familiar with, but he also worked on his rhythmograms for like 12 years. And I always find that fascinating. If people don't lose interest, especially in a time when there's drop, 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 right? And artist works on this, that. And I find it like really same as with Herbert and Franco working on something for 15 years, working on something for like 12 years, building a machine, and then working with that machine and creating work for 12 years in the middle of the night because the machine, it needed to be dark. And then a third artist. That's very tricky because I always think in the NFT space, everyone already knows everyone because we're constantly on Twitter. I think I would like to mention actually Anna Maria Caballero, though she's not emerging at all, but I'm really fascinated yeah. by her previous projects yes it's a coincidence that three projects are released at the same time but i really love what the verse verse is doing sasha styles anna maria caballero mm -hmm. and i think the way especially because you've just asked me also about female artists and the gap between male and female artists and i think Kalen ivamoto sasha styles and anna maria caballero the three founders of the verse verse mm -hmm. sort of get a gallery for poetry they do a fantastic job of working together supporting other artists supporting other female artists releasing work themselves i don't know how they do it how they work on their yeah, project they are always traveling they are always traveling to exhibitions shows <laughs> and they are yeah. exhibiting their work but also their diverse various other artists so yeah it's fantastic what they do is very impressive yeah, look at that. And I'm very impressed. We're working on something with upcoming next year poetry. That's also my background studying German literature. So yeah, Margaret Murphy, Hans Dehlinger, and then everyone knows the verse verse and Anna Maria Caballero. But I think there's even more interesting things to come in that field because generative art, people are very familiar with. But I think it's very important to keep an eye out for what's interesting when it comes to artists working with AI and then also artists working with something like poetry and finding like really new ways and making things accessible. Yeah. Right. That was awesome, Annika. Thanks for that, those names and thanks for sharing the time. I think we learned a lot. I learned a lot from your journey and yeah, I hope we can chat again at some point in the future. Thanks so much, Annika. Hope to see you next week in Paris. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. Take care.